Hey there, and welcome to Pink Squirrels, brought to you by Sapia AI, your guide to the future of HR, HR tech, and big HR ideas. Grab your acorns and fluff your tails, listeners, because today we have a very special guest, Kim Sealing-Smith, CEO and founder at Ignite Global. Kim is a veteran recruiter and expert on leadership, talent acquisition, and change management. She's the author of Mind Reading for Managers, and her expertise has been featured on Forbes, The Financial Review, CEO Magazine, and Fast Company. Today, we talked about the future of work, but also what's happening right now. Real, practical insights to help HR leaders solve their talent troubles. Kim Silling-Smith, thank you very much for joining us on Pink Squirrels. How are you? Oh, my pleasure, Nate. I'm great. How are you? Really, really good. I'd love to ask you, first of all, about your assessment of the current state of talent acquisition. So we know the jobs market is crazy right now, and TAs, recruiters are working like crazy. When times are stormy as they are now, you tend to cling to a safe port, which is in this case the status Mm -hmm. quo, right? So Mm -hmm. um, manual screening, manual interviewing, Mm -hmm. and in a lot of cases, again, understandably, but not great, um, a lot of candidate ghosting. It seems to be part and parcel with the way things are right now. Absolutely, yeah. So what do you think companies are getting wrong? Again, with that veil of understanding, what do you think they're getting wrong with regards to talent acquisition right now? Well, in part, it has to do with the, um, the market that we're in now. But in part, it's what companies have gotten wrong about talent acquisition as long as I've been doing this, which is too long to share with your listeners. Not a very <laughs> long time. <laughs> um, you know, I, I like to say the talent acquisition, recruitment, whatever you want to call it, is the thing that all hiring managers, HR managers, talent acquisition specialists, and organizations as a whole need to absolutely nail, but very few companies have dedicated the right resources to it. It's like, you know, from the industrial age, we had more candidates than jobs to fill. And so we were spoiled for choice. All of our systems and processes were set up for a candidate-rich market where the organization had control. And we haven't changed that. And that's the biggest thing that organizations get wrong is that realization that we have to change how we do what we do, that we have to put more importance on talent acquisition, that we have to treat it with the respect and the importance that it deserves because it is the fundamental leadership quality, building a great team. And I I wish more organizations would really uh, put the time, the money, the resources behind it that it really deserves. Do you think it's, in your experience, something that, is it a battle that the chief human resource officers or the chief people officers are losing um, when they go up against perhaps the CEO? Do you think that is where that budgeting issue arises? I think, I think yes. Um, I think in a large part that is what it is because the senior leadership still doesn't quite grasp, you know, I talk to a lot of CEOs on a daily basis and so many of them are still thinking that this, you know, we've been in cycles before. I've lived through two very, very tough candidate markets. Mm-hmm. Um, never any anything as tough as this market that we're currently in. So CEOs, I think, are still thinking that, well, it's cyclical. It's going to turn around. Yeah, we've got to go through some short-term pain, but, you know, we, we it, it will it will right itself. And especially, I hear this especially, with what I call the rise of the empowered 
workforce. You know, a workforce that knows that they're in control because there are more jobs than candidates to fill them now. Mm -hmm. And after two years of pandemic-induced reflection, they are getting very, very serious about what they want and what they don't want. And senior leadership needs to understand that this isn't just a moment in time. This is a sea change. This is a fundamental paradigm shift in not only the um, who you know who has control over this, but also the fact that we're in the midst of a critical skill shortage that is going to go on for at least another decade. We our, our birth rates have declined in mm. most Western countries, especially in Australia, and we just have fewer people able to fill the roles that we have. So this isn't a short-term thing. And in fact, it's you know I like to say that this is the challenge that we've seen coming for a very long time if we've been paying attention. McKinsey mm. wrote the white paper, The War for Talent, in 1997. Wow. Yeah, okay. So the, one of the things that we hear from a lot of um, HR leaders is that what they get from the executive, and, and to, to a degree they're part of it, what they hear is that we want quality of hire, prove quality of hire, and if you can't prove quality of hire, then we're not going to take this function seriously. And of course, as you know, quality of hire is a very nebulous metric, right? How do we Fair. prove that? Is it speed yes. to productivity? Is it, um, is it a finger in the air thing where we just say we like this person and they've done a reasonably good job over six months <laughs> exactly. or eight months? Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the things that we're seeing, that this lack of um, maturity when it comes to metrics, and again, this is understandable, this lack of maturity is what's making it difficult for HR leaders to get that cut through. This actually yeah. takes me to a next question. Um, you know, with regards to the, the skills shortage and also the crazy talent market that we're in, how do companies stand out against their competitors, mm. assuming that, let's say, they don't have access to the job ad budgets of the like of you know, mm. Google or Amazon, mm. or perhaps yeah. even a massive HR tech stack? What are the simple things they can do to stand out? And I love that word simple, Nate. I really do. You know, my my name is Kim Sealing Smith. My initials are KSS, but I like to joke that KSS also stands for keep it simple. Well, I like silly. Some people say <laughs> stupid. <laughs> and I'm a keep it simple kind of gal. And I really fundamentally believe that there are two ways of standing out from your talent competitors. Now, I want to really make the distinction between market competitors and talent competitors because mm -hmm. you have market, we, we think of talent acquisition most of the time in terms of who we compete against in the market as well. But our talent competitors extend far beyond that. If we're hiring accounting and finance people, our talent competitors is anybody with an accounting and finance function. Mm -hmm. So we have to stand out from our talent competitors. And there are really only two ways to do that. First of all, have a better story. Understand what your purpose is, what your values are, what your EVP is. And the second is, Tell it better than your talent competitors. Utilize everything that you have to your at your disposal. We live in a TikTok world. You know, we are a video-based society now. And that's one of the things that I love about what Sapia is doing, um, is utilizing, harnessing that technology, because we are in a video-based world. And so we need to utilize those, those um those assets, that way of reaching people to stand out. So have a better story and tell it better than your talent competitors. That's almost a um, sort of a, a, a branding or a marketing call to action in some sense, right? Like if we look at job ads as a particular example, LinkedIn has made it 
as one example, LinkedIn has made it quite easy with the easy apply button, right? So mm -hmm. you know that there, there is less of a, a barrier to entry for candidates who might otherwise go elsewhere. They say, well, I, I, my resume is already saved. I can click easy apply and submit it happy. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But putting more care and more thought in, for instance, in the way that you tell your story in your job ads as well, not necessarily having a section at the bottom of your job ad that says about our company and how great our company is, that you weave the story of your company throughout the yeah. job ads. And yeah. for those who do it well, Vino Mofo is a really good example in Australia. They write fantastic job ads because they do that very thing. They, I think they, they shorten Vino Mofo to the foe and that's the people who work there. <laughs> that's, what they, that's what they call themselves, which I think is funny because Vino Mofo is a quite a cool name anyway. Um, but would you agree with that, that the, it, when, it, when it's about talking about your story and your employer brand, it's about weaving it through organically, not necessarily making it a footnote? Yeah, especially in Australia. So um, you, you absolutely definitely don't make it a footnote. Um, and, you know, you can lead with it. But in Australia, really, you know, because of the tall poppy syndrome, it really look, works better to weave it in with the story and also have social proof, have credibility. Um, and, and, and go, I, I, I'm, I'm going to give an example of this, and I'm, I'm going to throw one of my favorite organizations under the bus, which is CSIRO. You know, love what CSIRO does. I don't know if you saw the social media. They're looking for a social media manager, I believe mm -hmm. it is. And Gary from HR uh, put up this really naff social media post. Great. I mean, went viral. Absolutely went viral. I think it won the internet that day. It was <laughs> fabulous. The comments and Gary's, um, you know, reactions to the comments were phenomenal. Then you click through to actually apply and man, did they let themselves down because mm. it read like a boring stock standard job ad. There was no life. There was, there was none of that tongue in cheek, you know, having fun, um, really, and, and, and you know, the CSIRO's media presence is really fun and it's a, it, they've got a really very well-defined brand and they really let themselves down, which is so much of what I see. And you said something really interesting earlier. Is it a, something about it being a marketing play? And that's absolutely right. We have to think, first of all, we have to stop treating talent acquisition like filling a takeaway order. We've got to start treating it like business development. It's got to be a long-term plan. So we need to understand who our market is, who our prospective candidate is. We have to develop relationships with them and we have to bring in our marketing team. If you're not having somebody with some marketing nows helping you write these job ads, helping you write your social media posts, helping you write the LinkedIn posts that you might use to drive traffic to your job ads, you're really missing out on an opportunity. You wouldn't think of writing your own marketing copy to attract customers why are you doing that to attract candidates, especially when they're harder to find in this market than customers are? And I wager by taking that approach, you're opening yourself up to the possibility of attracting those, what, what they call passive candidates, I yeah. guess, in a sense too. If you're thinking about your, your uh, acquisition strategy as a long-term marketing and branding play, not something that you do whenever you need roles filled, which is all the time right now, you're more likely to attract those people that are looking for roles even when you're not offering those particular roles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
Absolutely. And that's what we want to do. We want to we want to make it our business to know good people in the marketplace so that when the needs of our organization intersect with the needs of their career, then it's a no-brainer. Then you can shoulder tap. What I see far too many companies doing now is shoulder tapping too early. And the analogy that I use is walking up to somebody on the street, kneeling down on one knee and saying, gosh, I really like the look of you, Nate. Will you marry me? You know, it's just creepy. I, I completely agree with that. Well, that takes us neatly to candidate experience, right? And candidate experience gets paid a lot of lip service. I think everyone is talking about it. Ooh. But when we, and with that CSIRO example is a really good one, right? That um, there's no cohesion between the ad, which went viral for, for all the right reasons, mm -hmm. it sounds like, yep. to the actual application experience, which doesn't yeah. work. Yeah. What is going wrong with candidate experience? We've covered this a little bit, but is it just simply a case of we're too overworked to pause and refocus? We think... We just got to get through this this next six months. We just got to get through this next year. Yeah, is that the case? It's, it's a combination of things. Yes, everybody is overworked. Everybody is fatigued. So that's part of it. But it goes back further than that. It goes back to the fact that we're still trying to commoditize uh, the talent acquisition experience, like we do with all HR policies. Quite frankly, you know, I like to say the future of work is about. Um, a one-on-one -on -one relationship, and it's about that high-quality, high-touch. A one-size-fits-all policy actually fits none. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, not to not to plug Sapia, but that's one of the things that I really love about your your product is that you, as I understand it, and I, I'm not across it, but as I understand it, you use artificial intelligence to really customize the experience. And even though it's AI, it's customized. It's AI used the best way as opposed to what I think lets a lot of companies down, which is just keyword searches and just ignoring people based on keyword searches and not getting back to them. But the other thing that's going on, and this goes back to how do you stand out from your talent competitors? What you have is if you write a generic, boring job ad, then you're going to have the easy apply, the apply here. You're going to have tons of candidates who do not fit your brief. And as a result of that, you're going to you're going to have you as the talent acquisition specialist, hiring manager, HR manager, whatever your role is, if you're hiring, you're going to have more people to sift through. So your natural inclination is not to give them the candidate experience that you deserve. Take some time up front and understand what it is that you're really looking for. Now, that takes time and it takes effort. And I would say over 90% of hiring managers don't actually spend the time that they need to to really define what it is that they want and need in the role. If you define it, you will have fewer candidates apply, but the candidates who do apply will be the right candidates or at least closer to them. And then if you provide a great candidate experience, even if they're unsuccessful with the role, they become an evangelist. They become a brand ambassador for you. They can send you other people. Maybe they're a fit for a role in the future. We need to start thinking, again, playing the long-term talent pooling. So if we see a good person that's not right for the role, keep in touch with them. Again, so when the needs of your organization intersect with the needs of their career, then it's a no-brainer. It's a really interesting point, and I'm going to Pat, save you on the back a little bit, in, in, but this is directly relevant. So one of our customers, Walt, which is a food delivery service company, it's based in oh, Europe, yeah. they hire across 23 countries and 
what they learned from implementing our technology was that their, their, or their improvements to candidate experience were so great that their NPS score for rejected candidates went up plus 44 within three oh months of implementing the technology. So it's, and it's not that, I mean, there's, there's a lot of elements to that that make the candidate experience so good, not least is the, the chat interview format, but just the fact yeah. that you can reach that many people. And for even yeah. those that didn't get a job, they become evangelists. They say, yeah. I still want to buy from Walt. I'm still going to have them deliver my food every night. Exactly. And that never happens, right? That's revolutionary yeah. to me. It's, it's, yeah. and, and there are lots of ways of getting that done. And, and getting similar results, even if you don't invest in Sapiens technology. But I feel like we're not looking in the right direction sometimes. And Well, it's such an important point. I, you know, when I teach, I teach hiring managers how to interview. And I think we're going to talk about that in a second. But yeah. I, that's one of the things that we do at Ignite Global is, is we look at your talent acquisition processes. We can do talent acquisition reviews, but we can also teach your, your TA team and your hiring managers how to conduct a really robust hiring process. And in that hiring process, um, we need to, first of all, understand what it is that we're looking for and, and, and look beyond skills and experience. Look for those, um, uh, those innate abilities or their, you know, the, those strengths is what I would call them, so that you're, you're hiring the right person who can grow with you. Now, in in teaching that, one of the most controversial things that I teach is how to reject candidates. And I teach hiring managers to reject them in the interview. If you know that you're not going forward with that candidate, you tell them and you give them something value add to take away with them. Mm -hmm. What happens, what my experience was prior to starting Ignite Global in 2009, I was a recruitment consultant for 15 years. I did that with my candidates just because I felt that it was the right thing to do. No reason other than that. And then it started paying me dividends. These candidates that I was rejecting started sending me other candidates, started giving me business, paying me money. And I would ask them, you know, I, I told you that I wasn't going to be able to work with you or that I couldn't place you in this role that you wanted. Why are you giving me the opportunity to, to pay me a fee to fill, fill your role? And they would say the same thing every time. Because you were honest with me and you gave me something that I could use in the future and that really helped. And then when I started working on this side of the fence, not as a recruitment consultant, but as a, as a management consultant and, a, and a, a future of work consultant, I started talking to other organizations that, that had the same philosophy and they were finding the same thing, that rejected candidates can be some of your best brand ambassadors. So I love that story about Walt and gosh, that NPS is phenomenal. I mean, we've sort of covered this off partially, but one of the things that we've uncovered in a, in a recent research report um, made in conjunction with aptitude research was that companies, one in two companies have lost uh, candidates due to a poor yeah. interview process and 33% yeah. are not confident in their interview processes. It's obvious why in some cases, and we advocate for the structured interview, right? You know, be it technology or be it via a rubric, something that allows you mm. to you know, mm -hmm. benchmark and, and assess candidates fairly. Yeah. Uh, are there any other tips that you would suggest for making sure your interviews are as effective as possible? Yeah, absolutely. So I think I absolutely agree with you. I love structured interviews. And at the same time, you're kind of walking a knife edge these days because you don't want to be 
overly structured, you want to have a conversation. And again, you want to provide that great candidate experience in the interview process itself. So it goes back to understanding what it is that you need in the first place, and then structuring a conversational interview to be able to um, get that information from the candidate and understand that they're telling you the truth instead of what they think you want to know. Now that's an mm -hmm. art and a science, which is why I say that, you know, so all hiring, uh, sorry, all, uh, all companies really need to invest in training their hiring managers how to conduct that interview process. But it goes beyond the interview. Um, Using something like Sapia's product with a chat interview, with a video interview, that's one dot point. If I'm so imagine, imagine I'm standing up in front of the training room. The way that I illustrate this is I'm I'm drawing on a on a uh, Mishita, uh, you know, flip chart paper or on a whiteboard. So you know the pre-screening activities that Sapia provides. That's one data point. I look at interviewing and, and the hiring process as a, a collection of data. The interview, face-to-face -face interview or, or Zoom interview that you might do, that's another data point. The reference checks, do not not do reference checks. The reference <laughs> checks that you do, that's another data point. Um, you may also have something like what I call an on-the-job simulation, a work product that they do between interviews or something that you do in the interview process. So that's another data point. And if I'm drawing this on, on a, a sheet of flip chart paper, what I do is I then connect the dots and make a smiley face and say, you don't want to make a decision until you gather enough data to get a full picture of what that candidate will actually be like on the job. So you have have to approach the hiring process as a holistic process with multiple parts. Pre-screening activities are essential, interviews are essential, reference checks are essential. Maybe, uh, maybe you do personality profiles or psych profiles. And again, understand what you're looking for. Don't just do a mm -hmm. profile because your neighbor down the street recommended it. Understand what you're looking for and what that profile is telling you. So gather as much data as you possibly can, as effectively and efficiently and quickly as you possibly can. Because I, I like to say, you know, the, the, the expression speed kills. Well, in this market, speed fills, fills job orders, fills open that. roles. <laughs> so, you know, we need, we need to conduct a really structured, robust process as effectively, efficiently, and speedily, if that's a word, as we possibly can. What should employees be looking to do now to make sure that they're engaging and ensuring they're not constantly filling roles, making sure their employees are happy? Because I, I like to say, um, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? Yes. If if you're if you're making sure your people are happy and genuinely engaged, um, and I like to say that's more than sending out an employee engagement survey every six months or twelve yes, months. What's absolutely. your advice to people leaders who say, stop people leaving? How do we keep them happy? What would you say? Yeah, yeah. So um, I, <laughs> well, you as you know, actually. <laughs> Uh, from a previous conversation that we've had, I actually um, have a model that I created called the nine currencies of choice, or what I like to say, what I like to call the nine keys to avoid the great resignation. Uh, when I, I developed this about 10 years ago from reverse engineering the 5,000 interviews that I did as a recruiter. So 5,000 people came into my office and told me why they wanted to leave their manager. And I 
uh, reverse engineered that, and I've, I've since written a white paper, a fairly extensive white paper, on these nine keys. And, and if you're interested, you can download it from my website. I'm sure the link will be on the, the podcast. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, feel free. The most important thing, the most important thing, you know, managers are twisting themselves into knots trying to figure out how to keep their best people from walking out the door. And the answer is really surprisingly simple. It's that connection between manager and direct report. It's understanding and meeting the needs, but then balancing their individual needs with the needs of the organization. So you've constantly got to balance both because without, you know, without their KPIs being met, there won't be an organization to employ people. So we've got to constantly balance this, but we need to understand what their priorities are. And the nine currencies of choice or the nine keys to avoid the great resignation is a, a great cheat sheet, which is time tested and proven to increase employee engagement and retention. But you're right. It's so much easier to retain, you know, like the old Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young song, you know, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. I like to say, if you can't find the one you need, you got to love the ones you got. I like that. I think the, the which brings us neatly to, to the, this next question. Um, I imagine that from your research, talking to these 5,000 people, the majority of the the conflicts would be around people, be it the stubbornness of the the people leader or or um, some other factor. I mean, for for the companies that really struggle with employee engagement, is there a, a primary cause? Is it the people element? Is it that you have middle managers that aren't cooperative, for example? Or it's the manager. I mean, literally, it's the manager. The Gallup organization wrote a book, I think, in two thousand and nineteen. And the title of the book is It's the Manager. They have millions of data points that show that the number one uh, critical factor of success in an organization is the quality of managers and team leaders. So we've got to invest in our managers, not only to teach them how to hire, but to teach them how to lead in the post-pandemic world, to teach them how to connect with their individuals and, and to get them on the same page. You know, I'm starting to talk differently about accountability now. Uh, I am a firm believer that we cannot hold people accountable because that takes away their agency and their control and their choice. What we have to do is we have to set very high expectations, but then marry those expectations with their personal vision and their personal and professional goals and work together to achieve both, to mutually achieve the needs of the organization and the needs of the individual. And if you get that right, which, you know, as I describe it, it sounds fairly easy. I know it's not because it takes a high degree of EQ and, a high, and, and quite frankly, time that a lot of time poor managers aren't willing or able to devote. But if you do, if you crack that code and if you um, take the time to talk to your employees, to talk to the individuals that work with you about what matters to them and hold those high expectations, you will reduce your own workload and stress, I promise. Kim, thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Now, I understand you've got a webinar series coming up or there's one that's already in flight, but there's always a lot going on with you. So tell tell our listeners where they can find you and what's what's coming yes. up for you that's exciting. Yes. So the um, I'm running a webinar called, uh, well, How to Win the Hybrid Work Environment. And it goes back to how I... 
um, my, my new thinking around accountability and, and mutual performance. So I'm calling it uh, you know, mutually high-performing individuals and organizations. I articulate it better than that. Um, but this is really the key to running a successful hybrid work environment, which is the number one question on people's tongues right now. So that's coming up in September. Um, check out my website. My website is www.igniteglobal.com. Um, the webinar isn't actually on the website, but you can contact me. There's a contact form there uh, to be put on the mailing list for the webinar and certainly to download the nine keys to avoid the great resignation. Thanks for listening. Think Squirrels is brought to you by Sapia AI, creator of the world's first AI smart interviewer.